0: Hey guys, I'm Travis Doe, your host of the Bowers Podcast. You're listening to episode 37. And in this episode, we spoke with Anthony Dixon. Yes, 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 we brought him back. And the reason why is because he had an incredible experience up in Alaska, Adak, Alaska. It's a caribou hunt. And as if anyone has ever heard me speak or read anything I've written in the past, you know that A caribou hunt in Alaska is the number one bucket list that I have that I want to do before I die. I know some other people have different, more extreme type of hunts, but that's mine. But so I was incredibly excited to bring Anthony back on and let him share his story of his experience on this hunting trip. Now, here's the cool part. It wasn't just him. This hunting trip had him, Mike Waddell, Sean Monson. It was an incredible experience. He shares it really well. He has some great nuggets. So if you want, get a pen and paper, start writing down because this experience wasn't just about the hunt. It was everything, how it was like to be in Alaska, in ADAC Alaska, what the environment was like, the things you had to do, the hunt itself, uh, stuff they had to do just to survive. And it wasn't like life or death but it was enough to make it worth of an interesting trip. And so because this is a type of interesting trip that I think fits perfectly for the extreme month of August, I wanted to bring him back on. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get him on the line. Hey, Anthony, you on? Yeah. Welcome back again coming on our show. I know it's been a while since we've had you on, but I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing some of the experiences, especially for this particular one, which is my all-time favorite top of the bucket list. It's an Alaskan hunt. It's for caribou. And I'm completely stoked to find out this experience that you've done. Um, and thank you for, again, for sharing this because I think this is going to be pretty nice.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: When exactly was the hunt? When did you go?
1: Um, I would, I would say 16, 15, 14,
0: 13,
1: maybe 12 or 13. I think is what it was.
0: 12 or 13 years 2000,
1: ago? 2012. 2012. Oh, 2012.
0: 2012. Okay. Well, that's not that far. It's only been a couple years. I actually thought you meant like 12 or 13. as That's years ago, but 2012, is not that bad at all.
1: No. Um, we went to a place called Adak.
0: Adak. Okay.
1: Yep. And it's a very small island on the Aleutian Peninsula. And it has a ton of history you know, being so close to Russia. I was actually closer to Russia than I was the United States, uh, I'm pretty sure, as crows fly anyway. To put it into perspective, fly, flying from the mainland of Alaska, flying out to ADAC was four hours.
0: Oh, You're not and using a just say, uh, like a Delta. This is a prop plane pretty much, right?
1: No, 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 no. This is a jet. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty big plane. You know, like uh, holds... 50 people. Okay. And, you know, we arrived there. Um, I think it was in the, it was in the fall. I want to say it was like October or something like that. And it's very interesting place there because the military had a really large base there and with around 5,000 people based out of there. And so they, the herd on that particular Island was planted. And it was to supply the people that live there with a meat source if things were to get cut off from them, because you're so far out there.
0: So it wasn't like a natural migration. They, they were literally brought to there for uh, harvesting for food.
1: Yeah. Huh. So the town was totally abandoned. Like, you know, the drive through McDonald's wasn't existing, the when we were there, I think there was maybe a couple hundred people, depending on who you'd speak to at the time, there would be anywhere from 60 people there to a hundred. Now, current day. That is interesting. So very small. So when we went to go get some groceries that we needed, you know, we would go to the high school and the gymnasium had all these big coolers in it. And that's where the grocery store was. So you'd go into an abandoned school and, that's where these big, huge coolers were that would keep, keep the food, you know? It was, it was very, very, like, uh, the best I could put it is like Stephen King feeling when you're there. Really? Yeah. I mean, the whole place is abandoned, like the hospital, the, the, the McDonald's, like I was saying, everything's just abandoned. We stayed in military housing that some people owned. But the other places, there was so much housing there and being abandoned, you know, people just scrape and pillage and seeing how they were all built in military fashion. You know, if a window broke, you just go to the next the house next door and pull that window out of that one and put it in yours. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, once you land there, like when we were landing, to put it into perspective, I looked in the, the control tower as we were landing, and there's no one in there because they had, just, you know, the military base had just shut down and left.
0: So if everybody's pretty much picked up and there's just a few people out there— what made you decide to go to ADAC? Is that correct? ADAC?
1: Yeah. No, very good question. ADAC, that is the, the correct term, the uh, correct name of the island. Um, it was to go hunt reindeer is what I wanted to hunt. I didn't want to hunt caribou. Okay. I wanted to hunt reindeer. When I spoke to the DWR over there, the Fish and Wildlife Department of Alaska, they said, oh, that's you want to go to ADAC. That's where you want to go. And I was like, it was the, the names of the islands are very close to one another. Um, And I had originally heard about this on a Sitka blacktail hunt um, when I was over in Kodiak. And my guide, his name was Joe. uh, I can't remember his last name. Joe. Gosh, I can't. Maybe it'll come to me. But anyway, Joe said, man, you need to go see my buddy. He lives over on Adak Island, man. It's really cool. You got to go over there. So so that's kind of how we made our way over there. It was just the guy said, this is a do-it-yourself hunt you go there you'll have a great time so we did a little bit of research there's not a ton of information on it at the time and we flew over there we landed we had a place to stay to basically run a base camp out of we rented some four-wheelers that people just had around and we would we we got on it uh got on the four-wheelers um at first we rented a a, a, a six-wheeler Okay. Um, An Argo, to be exact. And we took that in, and then we would go in for a few days, and we would come out. Well, it was about five miles in. But on the way there, we had to build and and fix the road because it was really washed out. We had shovels with us, so we would take turns digging on a five-minute interval and flatten it out because we knew we were going to be coming out. On the way in, we just went for it. It was balls to the wall and we were going in. And on the way out we realized, man, if we don't fix this, we might not be able to get back in here because we were tearing it up. It rains, you know, quite a bit there.
0: Well even in the fall the weather, I mean, is that you're up there that that's pretty far in Alaska fall. Is that still would you say fairly snowy? Or is it do you actually have flat plains and you have grass growing?
1: Well, the funny thing is is because you're next to the Barren Sea. Okay. And you're right out there. That the temperature does not. I don't. I can't remember this exactly, but it never gets below like 30 degrees, and it never gets above 55 or 60. Wow. Because because you have the, the the colliding air from both the oceans there. Okay. So it's very interesting. There's no helicopters. There's no planes like to come get you there's commercial flights that fly out of there i don't know if they're daily or they're weekly i wouldn't know now maybe they, they may have changed it but it's very very much an abandoned island
0: so you're all on your own and pretty much
1: you are on your own so when you say five miles that's not that far well when you're out there and all you have is everything on your back five miles is a long way if you get hurt it's super steep terrain out there on the island very grassy. It's beautiful. There is caribou around there. They hang out on the south end of the island. And we started kind of on the northeast, I think northwest part of the island. And, um, you know, you're, you're out there, man. You can drink the water that's, that's out there in the puddles because it's clean. So water's not an issue. It's pretty intense.
0: Kind of stepping back because you said you went to go for reindeer. What happened? Why, why the change? I'm not, I mean, blame me, I'm actually happy with the change because what you got, but still the idea of you went for one, what made the change to go from uh, reindeer to caribou?
1: The DWR, the Fish and Wildlife Department, was like, oh no, you want to go here. And I didn't even think, I was like, totally like, okay, whatever, we're going to this island, there's, there's reindeer there, or there's caribou now. So I was just like, okay, you know, I looked at flights, I did some more research, and I was like, all right, fine, whatever, you know, and... I spoke to a friend of mine, and I just said, hey, you know, I don't know if you want to, it was in January, I said, look, we're having uh, cast at the bird, you should come out and uh, and hang out and see what you think, and then, you know, we'll talk more about maybe going on this hunt, he's like, well, what's the hunt, and I told him, and he says, you know, I need to do something like that, and I said, all right, well, you know, come out to Bowcast at the Bird. That's in July. We'll talk, we'll video, and we'll kind of do an introduction and use that piece for the TV show that we were working on. And so that's what we did. And it was just kind of by accident that we were going to hunt
0: caribou. Are they a harder breed to hunt? I just remember, like, the things I've read is that, uh, and even watched on television. Uh, was that, you know, with the caribou, pretty much if you hit them, that they, they fall. But that's all I know because I'm only able to go based on what I've read or seen.
1: They were, they're crazy. They're just so cool. Their configuration of their, their antlers are unbelievable. But I think they, they, the taste was amazing. You know, we ended up going in five miles, but then we had left our base camp and had to cross this inland waterway that we needed to cross when it was low tide. And then we ventured out another three miles. And, you know, we did well. We all killed decent animals, um, and they still exist there, and there are big ones there. Yeah, it was just one of those things that, it was probably one of the better trips I've ever taken in my life, to be honest with you.
0: How long were you out there? 11 days. 11 days in 11 days how many uh, animals did you you see we didn't see
1: a lot i mean we saw caribou every day but we did not we had we had three tags and we all killed and we didn't see a ton of them it's not like a migrating herd that you've heard of and then you know you get in the way of the migration and you know they land you with a helicopter and you get out you hunt three miles ahead of them and then you get to shoot one it wasn't like that because we were so self-sufficient. I mean, there was no other hunters there.
0: Right. Um, well, so you're on this island. How I mean, how big is the island? Because I know you said you're only about three miles in, three to five. But in general, like, how wide is this island in size?
1: I, I can't remember.
0: Okay. I just didn't know if by chance did. It's big. The, okay. So there is a potential migration uh, where the, the herd does move from, you know, they're, they're not just quartered into some small area, they can actually still roam and have miles and miles oh, of roaming. Yes, yes. Okay, okay.
1: Yes, this is very, it's very big, but, you know, when you say island, you assume that it's its its small, and that's not the case at all. I mean, there's mountains there, you know. There's a ton of rain. theres I wish we would have brought better fishing gear so we could have caught some, some of that, uh, you know, fish that were running in this river, and then, you know, we could have had better protein. And, um, you know, the, the big thing here that, that we haven't talked about, there's no predators on the island. There's no bears. There's no, no wolves. There's not no wolves. So it's like you look at this island, and this island would probably be the biggest money-making island if someone was to, one, clean up the mess from the military, to put, like, bighorn sheep on it or what, you know, there's other species that you could put on that island, and they'll do just fine. It's incredible. I mean, there'd be more people going to hunt there because they don't have to worry about predators, and there's a lot of people that don't like being around bears, and they don't want to be around wolves or or wolverines or anything like that, you know?
0: Were you spotting stocking the whole time, or...? I was
1: spotting Yeah. I mean, we move, you move, you glass, you move, you glass, you move, you glass. And, you know, when they start coming, like we had the one day, this big bull started coming with like three other cows and he was, he was on his migration route and we could kind of see the route of the trails and we just got in the way of him and we killed him. And he was a big bull. He's like 377 inches or something.
0: Oh, nice. You were out there, you were camping. I mean, you actually had a campsite. Yeah. You weren't going, because I know you said that you came into the military base and you're going in and out, but that was just to get supplies. Majority of the time you were out on uh, wherever you set up camp. We
1: we wouldn't even have had to have, yes, that's, that's correct. But we wouldn't have to come back and forth. But we had so much video footage that we were filming. So we had four GoPros and two film cameras going almost all the time. And so... We had enough film footage to make a movie, and we were only filming for a half an hour TV show and that is actually a half an hour really is not what it is. I mean by the time you minus out the commercials, you know you're looking at what
0: twenty two minutes
1: and there you go yeah
0: that's I think it's about standard for any television it's about twenty two minutes to give them their time for a thirty minute show,
1: yeah. And then we had enough to do. We had so much footage that they put it into two different shows, and it had the highest ratings of his. It was it was my friend's TV show, and we had the highest rating, or he did that year for that for that those two shows.
0: Well, so you had three guys go there. Who four, was, four. Okay, did and you, but you had three tags. So you had one. I guess assume one cameraman and the rest of the were hunters, or did everybody contribute? Everyone
1: contributes. Everyone is filming. Everyone is always you know, running their GoPro or grabbing the camera and filming this person do this or that or whatever. It didn't matter. We were always, you know, filming each other.
0: Who was the one that uh, drew the the short stick or something like that that didn't get a chance to hunt?
1: Um, his name is Steve Finch. He was responsible for real-free road trips.
0: So yep. <laughs> was that something that y'all planned ahead of time or was this more of like you were all out there and he just happened to be the lucky one that didn't get to do
1: it? No, Steve. Steve normally filmed uh for Michael you know on these on big hunts like this
0: okay
1: yep so it was Steve Michael myself and Sean
0: well if you're out there and on it one of the days and you you happened to spot and stalk them and were how far out were they when you noticed them
1: I think the first bull we ran into right out of camp the first day we we, we should have greased him I don't know why we didn't I wasn't up so I wasn't shooting but I would have killed him Um, He was a mediocre bull, and we ran into him like, I don't know, less than five minutes from our camp, walking, and we let him go, or my buddy did at the time. He let him go, and I was like, okay. And then we saw some every day, but some were way far away, like 10 miles away, we figured, or, or three miles, four miles, and... You know, when you first get to a place, you're kind of timid. You're just kind of warming up to the idea of, okay, where can we go? How far can we go? How far can we venture? And, you know, the whole time, you know, you got to be careful because, you know, you don't, you don't jump off a five-foot rock on the grass just to do it. You walk around it because you exactly. can't afford to, you know, sprain an ankle or something. You know, we had one, one guy got kind of injured when he was adjusting his GoPro on the four-wheeler on the way in one time, and he really, really screwed his wrist up. And, um, you know, I was mad at him. I, I, I just said, what were you doing? He goes, oh, I was adjusting my GoPro. And I was like, why are you adjusting your GoPro? And then you lose control of your four-wheeler, and you bury it in this pit mud. And, you know, you, you could have really screwed up and cost everyone a lot of time. Keep
0: you pretty uh, cautious of what you're doing. He could have
1: got really hurt. I mean, he could have been flown from the machine and broke the shoulder, dislocated it, whatever, break his hand, compound fracture. I don't know, but you know, some
0: Those people are variables have, that you just don't want to have out there.
1: Right. And you have to always be thinking of in and out and safe, in and out and safe. You always have to be thinking of that. And most hunters don't. And that's something that You don't even, I don't take it for granted in my own mountains right here in Utah. So when, to answer your question, some of the bulls we'd see far away, some close. And the experience of being in such a place is incredible. Because there's not a lot of people that get out there, you know. The natives don't really go out there. They go out there and, you know, to, to, to put it to you how far back you are in this place. There was two four-wheelers that were left back there for some reason. Maybe someone left the light on or something. So Michael was down there. He drove his four-wheeler down there. Couldn't get one of them started. And was like, well, I'll just bring one of these back, you know. So he just took the battery out of the four-wheeler that he was in, put it in this other one, started the other machine, put that battery back in his machine, and took a machine out with him. That machine had been out there for three months.
0: Wow. And he just brought they it back.
1: Yeah, we just brought it back. We ended up using that machine later on. And the guy was like, well, go ahead and use it. And the Argo, we ended up flipping that over onto its side. I was driving and flipped the thing with Steve in it. And, you know, gasoline's running on us and everything. And and we just started bouncing in this tundra that's got holes in it and kind of big grassy heads If you'd have it uh, sticking up, and we hit one of those, and it it just popped the machine over on its side, I I thought, you know, here this Argo is all enclosed; it's got a cage on the top. This thing's super stable, whatever. No way, I wouldn't get caught dead in one of those things. (laughs) I almost, I almost died in that son of a gun twice, man. We were trying to, we would load that thing up, and we were trying to get out, and and it's a belt drive, and the belt was slipping on the on the machine. We had no means to tighten that up. And uh, we almost lost that machine in that episode. It was real footage. I was in the machine alone. I told everyone to get out. And uh, we were coming up this hill, and we weren't sure we were going to make it. We had a big steel spud. And they pounded that into the ground very easily, about three feet down, because it's so wet out there all the time. And then we threw a rope around that and literally tied it on as as this belt was slipping as I got to the top of this hill driving it. It was crazy. There there was all kinds of little moments like that that reminded you of how far out you were. Like, every time we would leave to go in, I was nervous. Every time we would leave to go out,
0: I was nervous. And is the reason why you're using four-wheelers in the Argo is because, is that the best way of transportation to and from the island? Or, I mean, was there any chances of doing, like, pack horses? No, there's no horses. No horses, okay. Remember,
1: there's no one in the radio tower when you're landing with the plane. (laughs) snow horses. There's usually a couple fishermen that are in town, you know, and we ate some great crab and met some really nice people. And, um, you're just really, really out there. And,
0: um, well, so let's say we're, we're thinking of your particular day. It was the day that you, you were picked, you're going to be doing the hunt. And how far was the caribou when you decided that's the one I want? How far away was he?
1: Um, We stumbled upon mine in a small, tight drainage, and I think I shot him at 65 or 75 yards away. Okay. And then he ran to my right, and I reloaded, and when he had come up onto the same elevation out of the drainage that I was on, I had set my slider sight at 40 yards, and I shot him again, and he was on the run, and... The only thing I could think of was my first hit was a touch high, but not bad left and right. But then um, on that second shot, I I double lunged them on the the move. And they moved pretty quick. And, um, you know, you want to put your animal down. You want to be ethically responsible. And so I didn't want to be chasing him around on the island. So I wanted to put another arrow in him, and I did that. And then uh, what was really cool... Is The bald eagles, they're used to hunters there. It wasn't even 15 minutes, and they were on us. And they were waiting, like 10, 12 of them. Okay. And we were throwing the food out at first, the scrap. You know, we just were like, let's see if these things will fly by us. And we would throw the scrap out, and they'd come and get it.
0: They'd literally swoop and, down um, and just take the food?
1: Oh, yeah, like 12, 12 feet away from us. They would swoop down and grab it. Yep. And one time, I was like, man, we should be... Putting a string on a GoPro, put the GoPro and the meat down. Throw a piece of meat by the GoPro, and he comes down and grabs it. Hopefully, he grabs the GoPro, and you get that footage.
0: How would you retrieve it?
1: Well, that we needed a string, and we had no oh, rope to, the tie, okay. to tie around it. You know, if we would have had uh, rope, we would have been able to film that and get our camera back. You know, obviously, we're not going to take a GoPro, put me around it, and then give it to him, let him fly off with it. and Hopefully, you know, he would drop it where we could see it, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really cool um, to to think of doing something like that and then going through the effort of um, buying your food, putting it in boxes, mailing it to Alaska, and preparing yourself before you're even there.
0: Well, I definitely want to touch but- on that because that – That's something that was very interesting. Or I had a question that came up from something you were bringing up earlier, and it was that when you took your shot, and I know from our previous conversations we had, you're, you're very adamant about form and preparation and practice. And so I was kind of wondering, like, knowing you're at that spot and you're right about to shoot the caribou, what is it that you're thinking in your mind before you actually released the arrow?
1: Pull through the shot, get a good break. That's all I ever think about. I always just think about my subconscious mind handles the drawback, the leveling of the bubble, putting the pin coming down on the target, the pin is on the target, and then you start to aim. And when you, you know, you, you basically put the pin on, so now your focus is on the pin, but then it leaves and goes to the animal. As soon as it goes to the animal, your brain subconsciously starts to tell yourself to pull through the shot. When you pull through the shot and you get a surprise break on it, meaning it surprises you, is a back tension style type of release. Um, that's all I ever think about. And if you, you know, the whole thing is, is when the adrenaline's pumping like that, you don't really, you shouldn't have to think about anything. If you do, you don't shoot enough. Or you never shot enough from the beginning to be a very good archer. Because you can, there's two ways. You can shoot a lot every single day and be a very good shooter. But at some point when you were doing that type of shooting, your subconscious mind is so incredibly strong that you don't have to think about it. And if you tap into that and you know how to use your subconscious mind, you can execute shots that are... I wouldn't even talk about it on the air. I don't have to.
0: Because you're basically going to muscle memory, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's muscle memory, but it's mind memory. It's mind memory. It's, it's more than just muscle memory. It's just a That's just a, a, a term that we've used for a very long time in the archery industry to basically try to teach people that they need to shoot a lot. Um, if, if you If you get really good at shooting, at some point you will shoot an arrow, And it just felt right. Like you'll turn to your buddy or your girlfriend or whatever and you say, man, that just felt great. And they say, yeah, that was a good shot. I was watching through the binoculars and I saw where you hit. When that happens, you have to step back and realize what happened. You don't, most people just turn around or they'll knock another arrow or they'll let someone else shoot at that time. That's not what you do. What you do at that standpoint, moment in time, is analyze what you did. Why was it a good shot? It's probably because you shot subconsciously and you didn't think about anything. You just relaxed, you pulled through the shot, you break it clean and it just went there. That's shooting subconsciously. Well said. And when you, and when you do that, you become extremely effective. And this is granted, your bow is running right, you have a good arrow set up, you know, you're not you're shooting you're more overspined on the arrow, you have weight forward, you're shooting uh, a little bit higher vein or longer, so it's more stable and slight, and you've understand the basics of how an arrow flies and and you know, that's that's uh that's the big separator I guess between people that uh go hunting as a recreational sport.
0: <laughs> the weekend warriors.
1: I don't know if I would call on that because at any given moment you can leave that mind frame of being a weekend warrior and just be very, very good at shooting.
0: I guess you're right. Cause and there one, are some people that just, they, they train for their whole season and they only get one solid week of hunting. And they're just as a solid hunter as someone that gets to hunt all year round. It all depends on that moment when they actually pull the trigger or release the arrow. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't think you can get really good at killing animals unless you're in front of animals. And even me to this day, like I haven't been in front of any big mule deer yet. I haven't been in front of any big elk yet. And when that time comes in a couple weeks, um, I can start shaking. I can start having this adrenaline high, which is why I hunt. I don't hunt because I have passion. I think that's a word that is so overused in our industry that I'm almost appalled to hear it nowadays. I'm like, oh, you can take your passion and shove it up your ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's drive. It's, it's almost to go back in time where a place where you needed to eat. And if, if you hunt with some urgency, uh, I think it's better. I think every human being can tap into what they are, what they want to be, but they have to have something on the line. And if they don't have anything on the line and they just say, oh, well, I just hunt because I love it. Well, great. That's fine. I have, I think those guys are great. Um, but then at some point they always like ask "Why? What, what do you shoot or why you shoot or how you shoot. But a lot of times the questions that they ask are just a question that they want to ask. It's not that that information actually gets put into their brain and they write it down, you know.
0: I'll, I'll bet you there's
1: people that are listening to this show that won't write down anything.
0: Yeah, just, they like to listen.
1: Yeah, it's pure entertainment, which is fine. You've got to be entertained in life. But for me, if I'm not learning something, it's kind of a waste of time.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
1: I, I could just be doing something different. I mean, it's not, it's not something that it has to be better because better, what is wrong with right now? This is a perfect time. I'm alive. It's perfect. If it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing it, which means put some effort into it and be good at it. Be the
0: best. The, um, once you shot that, the caribou itself and he's on the ground, what, what happened after? Like what are you? What are the things that you're doing? Are you going back to camp and setting everything down? Are you getting like? Do you already have everything with you to start uh, quartering it up and field dressing it? Or like, what what's those things happening at that moment?
1: Well, I mean, we have to film, so you know, immediately, you know, you jump right into the, the the filming mode, and you you get what you need, and then you you start cutting, and you're filming some of that, and you're you know, like filming how the whole shot went down, and and you know what the plan is of attack here, and you're going to be, you know, obviously dismembering the the uh, animal and and get the carcass, uh, you know, cut up, and then you you know you load it up and you're on your way. You're thinking about okay, are we going to land in the dark? Are we going to make it over that river before high tide comes back in uh, to be able to make it across there? Or are we going to be, you know, in you know, five to six feet of water.
0: That's interesting. Okay. Well, one of the things is we said you had no predators, right? Yeah. So basically you knew that you actually could take your time. You had nothing to worry about something trying to come in and taking uh, the animal or away from you. So the time wasn't really the issue other than just you're taking like high tide.
1: Well, high tide is what I'm thinking about. But at the time, you know, that ground there is a long grass, blade of grass that's 13 to 18 inches tall, and there's holes everywhere, um, meaning not sinkholes like mud holes, but there's holes, you know. So you got to watch where you're walking. Um, in our case, there's, there's a lot of uh, unexploded ordnance out there on the island. And if you step on that, you know, your you know, chances of that thing going off might be pretty good.
0: Are you talking about those landmines?
1: Um, there was a lot of ordnance out there that are... Uh,
0: from uh, grenade
1: from grenade launchers. Really? Yeah. And they're like 18 inches long. If we found one and we could see the the fins sticking out of the ground and the fins were like three inches long, we saw like six of them. Well, that ordinance was over 20 inches long when we looked it up later on. And that was from the 50s and stuff like that when the base was going in the 60s maybe. Um, you'd have to check and see when the base officially closed. I know the Navy's out there and has some some places that you're not even allowed to go. Where we, you know, have we probably got a bunch of subs over there. I think there's a base over there, but they don't talk about it. And there's no name of it, and it's not on any map. You won't find it. But uh, yeah, you've got to be careful. I mean, we were, you know, there's areas when you look at it, you can see these big explosion, you know, craters in the in the surface of the Earth where these guys were out there, you know, the military was out there practicing and shooting off mortar rounds. And, and, you know, it was really cool. Gun shells are all, you know, shells from casings are all over the place. And yeah, it's, it's like I mean, we were finding tent stakes that were made out of Oak that had the notches in them that were 18 inches long that were from the military camping there in their canvas tents. And then you would see a square area that the military guys would cut out the bank, make it flat, and you would see those areas where the tents were.
0: So basically, there really is hardly anybody that comes out there.
1: <laughs> Not really. I mean, the the way to do this hunt, if I had to do it all over again, I would find a captain that can leave from the main marina, and I would go around the island, and I would hunt the south end in a boat.
0: Really? Is it just because you can cover more ground and have a different perspective?
1: Well, I would run a boat and then I would run a dinghy off of that and take the dinghy in and hunt and live off of the boat and set crab traps and stuff like that. We were going to do another trip where we were going to take, and we were going to do an expedition and take the same guys and go do a, a, make a movie out of it and go around the south end of the island and then head up the Aleutian chain and go to another island that's really, it sounds really close to Adak, but that's where the reindeer are and um, and go hunt the reindeer at the same time. So we would be filming us picking up the, the crab pots and, and hunting caribou and hunting uh, reindeer and living on this boat where you would see these guys, um, you know, that are hunters actually pulling crab pots and stuff like that.
0: So if that was basically if you were going to do it again, that would be something that you would do?
1: Yeah, I would spend the money, and you can't pay a captain over there to do that because he's not a guide and he doesn't have a guide license. So you have to find the right guy, and you have to, um, <laughs> you know, you can't pay him. But you might be able to take him on a hunt somewhere else with you in the United States for the lower 48. You could do something like that.
0: Well, thinking about this trip, and you, you said everybody was successful. What do you think you didn't do right that you failed at? Either you didn't bring the right equipment, and what equipment was that if that was the case, or you didn't have enough food, or there's something that you knew that you did, you made a mistake and you should have done it differently. Nope. There wasn't.
1: Happen- r- not happening. Not happening? Nope. <laughs> and I don't mean to sound arrogant, it's just not happening. I mean, you, when you lay in bed and you start building this hunt in your mind and you have four or five months, that's all that's on your mind. you got to remember, I packed up boxes of food and product and gear that had to be shipped there. So you're thinking about not only I handled all the shipping of the food plus some of the gear. So you when you show up, you have a list of what you shipped, you have a list You're in communication of when they get that stuff. And then when you're staying there, I mean, we had heat, we had some beds, we had, there's no TV and, you know, we just needed power to get, to get all this compute, you know, the computers up and running and be downloading footage into these external hard drives every time we would come back. And we came in and out three times. But if you're hunting and you're not filming, I would go in further but you're talking about having some pretty big balls because you can only take the four-wheelers in about five miles. And then that particular trail ends, and we took it right to the end. Because remember, you're we would drive a four-wheeler on a road that it said that we could use, but there's no road.
0: Just because it hasn't People been used in a while.
1: Yeah, you don't want to damage the place, you know what I mean? It's bad enough that you're in there with four four-wheelers. I mean, every time we would go in and out, if you missed a certain turn and you weren't paying attention, you would miss that. Well, then you're putting that impact on the environment, and that's not something that we none of us wanted to do. We wanted to go in, but sometimes when you're trying to find a way to this particular inlet, just it was just west of this little beach, Um When I say beach, it's not a beach like with white sand. It's a beach with rocks and stuff. That was as far as we were allowed to drive the four-wheelers. So if I had it all to do again, I don't think I would use the four-wheelers. But if I was on a budget, I would just fly in there to ADAC. I would rent the four-wheelers from some locals. I would punch in the three miles. And then I would go in even further. I would go by foot and that's dangerous. I mean, you got to be with the right people that aren't going to freak out when something goes wrong, you know,
0: even that, I mean, the further you go in, that's the turnaround. The, when you were successful and you take an animal, that's all those extra things you have to do to bring out when you have nothing else to help you bring it out. It's all on you, your gear, the footage, the cameras, all those things. And on top of that, the animal you took, and it just probably makes multiple trips. So yeah, I guess making you know trying to stay closer to where you came in is probably more efficient. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's
1: pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean you've got to just be self sufficient. So I mean I like the idea of having the boat. I think even though that would be you know roughly around I'll bet you three thousand dollars. You know because we were we were going to pay for the fuel and the captain who's I still have his phone number and everything. He was just going to drive us and hang out with us.
0: Well, one of the things that I know, it's a question that I can't seem to get a lot of people to answer. Hunts like this. You had lots of preparation. You obviously did your research. What is something like this cost? And I guess you can kind of give a, a span from you can go in it really cheap or you can go in it to full luxury like you know, there is no budget. But in general, what would something like this put someone in?
1: I think we paid... Like thirty-two to thirty-five hundred dollars a piece,
0: and that's from that's just a hunt with the license, but that's with the shipping everything out, your flights, uh, everything. Yeah,
1: that's why we did it. This was a do-it-yourself hunt, very affordable, and yeah, I mean thirty-five hundred bucks. I mean, I, we didn't have we're flying to Alaska, so we flew from Salt Lake City up to Oregon, from Oregon to Alaska, from Alaska out to the Aleutian Peninsula. I don't know where we flew into. It might have been Juno, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember.
0: Okay, because that—that is a really inexpensive hunt. I mean, that's that's doable.
1: It might be four thousand five hundred now, but it's not that bad. But the whole thing is, is this: you're self-sufficient. If you're not a good hunter and you're going to spend this money and spend this time and get out there, and you suck, <laughs> you're not going to go. You're not going to go, dude. You just be like, no, I'm not doing that because. It's all on me. And very rarely does any hunter ever wanna say it's all on me.
0: That's the kind of thing that almost drives me though. It's surprisingly enough, I love the idea of hunting with people. I love the camaraderie. I love the you know, coming back and talking about what the experience was that day, that evening next to a fire. Ironically though, over the last few years, out of the best efforts, now granted I'm still most of my hunting, actually let me just say this. Every bit of hunting that I've done in the last few years has been strictly deer hunting. So, but of all attempts I've tried to go with people, I end up just being a solo hunter. Every time I go out, I'm always going out in times people can't go. And so I've almost had to just rely on myself. I haven't had a huge amount of hurdles to take because everywhere I go has been fairly close. But the fact is, it's kind of like all on me. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And Every time I've ever wanted to experience the idea of going out West, doing any type of Western hunting up to even Canada or even Alaska, I've always had this thought that, and people have heard that there's things into the racking up into the multi thousands where you're going to like nine, 10, 11, 12 plus. And I'm like that, just as a one person, that seems very, that seems like a lot on an average budget. But then trying to add someone else and then configure time and all this other stuff, it just seems to make it so much harder but a hunt like this being even 3 to 4000 dollars that's something that someone can technically you know save up for a little bit of time two or three or four people and actually make it doable um yes you're having to be sufficient but and do everything yourself that is actually another level of an excitement because it is all on you it's either you're going to fail on your own terms or succeed on your own terms versus having to Rely on a guide and think, well, if it was failure because either you had a good guide or not, and obviously most guides are probably good, but the fact is that you can always have that thing. Well, I didn't get anything because we just didn't go to the right places. Well, this is all on you. That actually adds that extra excitement on top of you have to just make sure you do your homework.
1: Well, what are you waiting for?
0: <laughs> it was to, honestly it was because I never thought uh, a hunt like that could be that um, that that cost. I mean, I thought it was that there was going to be into like tens plus. I never thought it could be that low. So I don't know what I'm waiting for. That's a, that's kind of an eye opener.
1: I think you have to, you have to go if, I mean, if you're going guided, that's one thing. And you know, an outfitter that may drop you off in a place you gotta be able to walk even farther than that because the last guys that were in there before you ran into to the other drain it. But this is a style of hunt that you have to have the experience and you better have the experience in the backcountry. Because you you know, when I told people what I was doing, I had Kurt Wells from Bull magazine. He wanted in. And I just said, I'm sorry, but you can't come.
0: Was that because of just experience? You knew that he didn't have it? Oh or?
1: no, he's a great guy, Kurt Kurt Wells. Doug, he, he's the great hunter, um, good person to have in camp, good person to be around, um, but it's just a matter of, like, we had things set. The dynamics of your team that you put together is everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Going with four guys that know what they're doing is great, or you go with two guys, like, you know, out of Michael, Michael is a minimalist, and Steve is a guy that just Can do it he just figures it out and he just rolls um which is a certain kind of mindset as well you know you had myself that i had a ton of experience maybe more than anyone in the in the group as far as like staying out in the backcountry being in alaska and camping and all that stuff i'd done you know a lifetime of it um sean munson was a great adapter and, and really paid very close attention to his gear, what he was, who he was, and how he was going to do it. And he did it. Um, you know, that's. it's always about the group dynamics and who's – there's no real leader at that point. Um, it's all about, like, you talk about it, you weigh it out, the decision, and then when the decision is a mutual agreement between everyone, then that's what you do but everything's discussed because what one guy knows, the other guy doesn't know. And there's always a discussion and it's always good. So you really want to have good people around. We had a great team of guys and, and that's why that hunt. I mean, if you said to some guy, we did road repair or four wheeler road repair for over 70, well, it's probably about 50 yards and we all dug for about a half an hour. We spent, we spent, over an hour and a half, probably three hours, just working on that particular patch of road just so we knew we would be able to get back. We never had a problem with it. Never had a problem with it. Yeah. The first time we went through that, we were like, holy cow, the machines were tipping way sideways, tipping that way. The ruts were over three feet deep. You know, it wasn't like, oh, the four-wheeler's going to tip over. I'm just going to put my leg out here and I'm going to catch myself. No, you're not doing that. because If you do that, then you, you're going to break your leg. So you you know, you manage. I mean I remember when we would go over the pass before we would get down and be actually looking to the west into the Barren Sea, it was beautiful. But it was also like you almost knew like once you made the pass, and we were only in five miles, but once you made the pass, you knew that you were kind of in the area. Like there was no time to mess around. You had to navigate going down this really rocky, very, very narrow four wheeler trail that accessed the barren sea and if you fell off the right side of it you aren't getting up wow yeah it was rad i mean it was nuts
0: is this footage anywhere that can be found
1: it's archived with with uh uh michael waddell owns it
0: well i mean like is it by chance on youtube or anything that anybody can see
1: i don't know i don't know i know that that footage is is epic i mean it's it's not even good it's great steve that uh did a lot of the filming, uh, you know, with all of us. He, for him to scrub that, he said it was the hardest thing he'd ever scrubbed in his life because there were so many good parts, but we only had, a you know, two half an hour TV shows to do it. You and mean, I told him, I was like, why, why don't we make a movie? Why didn't we make a movie out of it? Why didn't we just blow it up and make a big movie out of it? And they're like, well, what sponsors do we need? I'm like, why do we have to have a sponsor? Let's just, just build the movie and... You know, it, this would have been, this thing would be on Netflix right now.
0: This was literally just can't, like, it, it was never aired?
1: Yeah, they aired the episodes. Like I said, they did really well. It was a great show, man. It had great reviews and best reviews oh, Michael had.
0: But they just couldn't do anything with it afterwards. It's just archived. Just, wow. yeah, you
1: just archive it. You just say, yeah, oh, that's it, man.
0: <sighs> well, yeah, I know it's know that uh, cool it really is. I'm... I am literally fascinated on the idea. I know you're like the, the goal was for a, uh, a reindeer hunt, but to me, I don't know why I just I think ever since a little kid I've always wanted to do a caribou hunt in Alaska. I have a certain way uh, I'd love it to be. Obviously you can never plan it to be the perfect way. but certain times, certain style, uh, especially even then it was I wanted to do a spot in stock. And I wanted to, now it's with a bow, which is kind of cool. Back then it was a a rifle, but I definitely want to do it with a bow one day. And um, now, as crazy as it is, I didn't think it was that, I wouldn't say cheap, but inexpensive to experience something like that. I thought it was going to cost a whole lot more when it comes to the shipping of all your gear, the food, the preparation, the landing, the flights, and everything involved. I thought, and then on top of that, shipping the meat back, the antlers, the you know, the hide itself. Like to me, I just thought it was going to be so much, uh, and I never even put into a forethought of anytime soon. And um, well, you
1: and you can to back up a little bit. Your Delta won't let you bring the meat back anymore.
0: Yeah, which is stupid for okay. the
1: most part. So you've got to donate that, which we did that. And the antlers, they just cut the skull plate, and you take the hide and you freeze it. So. You know, when you look into it, you look into a place that you can rent for a week or whatever, you know, or two weeks. And then you can go back in and you might have to dry gear out or whatever or just take a break. You know, I don't know. And then you find some four-wheelers and you just start talking to some locals and you get all lined up. I think to ship the food was like 370 bucks, if my memory serves me. And we just split that four ways.
0: What type of food did you bring?
1: Um, we, Mountain House, I went to the OR show. I was speaking to them and they were like, sure, you know. And I, 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 I needed some a little more credibility, so I, I, called Michael and Michael answered and said, hey man, what's going on? I said, look, I'm standing here with the lady from Mountain House. I need you to talk to her for a minute, tell her about this hunt we're going on. And he did, and that was it, man. It was done. She was like, yep, I'll send you everything you need. We didn't pay for one Mountain House. They sent us like, well, they sent us uh, twelve days worth of food for four people.
0: Now, Mountain House, and I I do backpacking every year, and I used to be, I've eaten my share of Mountain House, and I've always had a problem with Mountain House is that I could never truly finish their food, not because it was that delicious and I was so full, I couldn't finish it because I just couldn't taste or take this taste anymore. It was either, for whatever reason, I just didn't like enough of them, no matter all the flavors I've tried, um, I've tried everything out there. Uh, I've actually come to like uh, Heather's Choice. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but uh, I used her on our last backpacking trip, which is amazing. I mean, we had, it was six ounces of sake Alaskan salmon mixed in with like this um, a chowder form, which was amazing. And some other ones, which was really good. But w- did you have any issues with Mountain House or was it sailing, like everything, going to the bathroom, all that stuff, was it all good? Because I had issues.
1: I Well, first off, most of the time people don't drink enough liquid and liquid is always going to help with your digestive system and then the process of getting rid of the waste. But, um, you know, you can do like a Metamucil and stuff like that. If it's going to give you the fiber to get things, uh, cleaned out. So I'll do that on hunts. Um, but I don't have a problem. I used to have a problem with mountain house a while back when it was a little, uh, a lot, quite a bit more sodium and it kind of really changed things. So I still stick with them. I, I don't like their stuff. I love it. Really? Like I eat it all. The time. Yeah. Whenever I'm in the backcountry and I'm tired at night, I, I want to just boil water. I want to walk over, start prepping something else for the next morning, and and then I want to be. I want to just basically dump the water in, and then I get another 50, you know ten fifteen minutes to go do something else, and then by the time I eat that and have a couple pieces of bread, because I'll carb up when I'm on a hunt because I'm I'm literally dropping. You know, on a ten-day hunt, um, I've dropped a pound a day, and I I really lean out, and I and I love it. I love leaning out. It's it's a great feeling, and I like it. And I get much faster. Um, And speed is is so critical when it comes to killing animals. But um, no, I I have no no problems with mountain house at all.
0: Okay, so you had the mountain house. You um, did you bring anything else? I mean, when it came to the food. I think it?
1: we brought, um, we always, back in the day, uh, we always uh, brought, uh, what is it, uh, patchouli? No, patchouli, patchouli, what is it? Uh, the hot sauce. Can't think of it right now. We
0: always I bring know what a bottle hot I guess, tip of the tongue, don't know what it's called, but I know, I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's got a wooden top on it. Yeah. The top is wooden. I can't remember the name for some <laughs> reason, but anyway, yeah, I love that stuff. So, you know, I just like mixing it up a little bit. You know, and you know, bringing some pepper with you is always good. Or little packets from, say, McDonald's or something like that that has honey. And you know, you got to
0: be resourceful. Did you? Um, uh, did you bring any kind of like some sort of sweet?
1: Um, we always try to bring like a candy. You know what I mean? I try not to bring hard candies because I don't want to break a tooth out there. I just bring soft stuff. So I don't. I don't. I don't do Jolly Ranchers and stuff like that.
0: So the the hunt's all over. You've gotten all three caribou. It's all been packed out and quartered. Um, what did you do when it came to packing out? I mean, were you more conservative and you made sure that no, uh, you had no footprint, so to speak? You cleaned everything in. Whatever you took in, you took back out. Or, I mean, obviously, oh, you don't want to trash it. But I mean, was there there's things?
1: There's no like- fire. You know, we never made a fire.
0: Really? Oh, because uh, there's no trees.
1: It, well, there's no trees. You know,
0: there's no trees on the island. Okay, so you didn't have trees. How in the world did you stay warm?
1: You get in your sleeping bag, you bring down stuff.
0: Just staying in your sleeping bag? Ooh. Wow, that would have been um kind of crampful. I mean, my my down sleeping bag, it's not very roomy. You when you're back at
1: camp, back at camp, you know, it wasn't freezing cold when we're there in October either. It's right. it's nice warm. Remember, it never gets below like 30 degrees. Or into the twenties, I should say. I don't think it gets below twenty-five, and it never gets above fifty-five or sixty.
0: But you, had, I mean, you obviously had to have enough change of clothes because if you wore the same stuff that you were wearing out during the day, and then by the time you are back, I mean, you're gonna that clothing is all wet, and then even that slow or low temperature change, that's still enough to uh, gives you the early stages of hypothermia. We had some
1: weather. We had some good weather in the early part of our trip where we had sunshine and wind and it dries everything out really quick, man. You're on the ocean. You're on an Island.
0: Ah, that's right. Totally forgot about that.
1: You're surrounded by water. Air moves constantly. The birthplace of the wind is ADAC. That's what Adak means. Birthplace of wind.
0: Oh, how cool is that? That is so interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's windy there. Um, so stuff dries quickly, and uh, but when it rains, like we had 24 hours of rain, and I remember when we were rolling up our bed mats in the rain, breaking down camp, we're getting ready to leave, in the rain, which makes it harder. You you know you get you kind of got to get the mindset that you're going to be operating in, in wet conditions, and um, we, I remember rolling up my sleeping bag, rolling up my bed pad, and I was literally sitting on. Water and the bubbles. I could push it. I could push the bubbles underneath the tent, and it wasn't leaking. But it was like i being on a waterbed. That's how. That's how often it rains there, and the grain, the ground can only accept so much water.
0: Still, it was cool, cool,
1: man. (laughs) Yeah, sunsets were beautiful. Um, Temperatures are good. You you got to look into it and and do some research on it. And uh, it's awesome.
0: I'm definitely going to now at that price. That is something I would have never imagined. And that seems like a, a chance of hitting a bucket list a lot sooner.
1: Well, you know, you don't have to come up with that kind of money right away. You might buy your plane tickets this year for next year. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. And then you start shipping things and you do it slowly and you don't just you don't just bite off more than you can chew and just start throwing your credit card around unless you've got bad money. But I don't have mad money, so I just did it. I did it very cost effectively, saved money when I could, and then you know when you're on the trip and you know when you get back to the mainland and you're in the airport, you're pretty much digging that food and you have some ice cream. You're gonna have whatever you want.
0: So now here's a big question: You were yeah. gone for was it two weeks, basically eleven days? Yep. Okay. So
1: 10 and then plus travel.
0: That's a long time away from your family. How one, how did you stay in touch? If you were even able to, and two, what was it like during the preparation? And when you got back, if you're open to talking about it, Cause I mean, thinking about yeah. it, there's some people are just, they can go out for months, no big deal, go out for 30 days, two weeks, one week here and there, but then there's families are very tight and they have the going out for even three or four days can put a toll in the relationship, even during the preparation before you even left. And then, but coming back, there's always that, you know, time long of being away you know, how did it come back? So I was just kind of curious, how did you handle it? What was it like?
1: Well, communications on the island, you can have those. Well, that's good. Um, so that was good. I was able to, to touch and talk to the family here and there. We had a sat phone with us, which is which doesn't always work, but it's it's good to have one of those. And you can do a short-term contract on a, on a sat phone, which is, you know, if you've got one of those wives that needs to talk to you every other day, uh, or you feel you have to, maybe you're that type of a person, then you you make that adjustment, but um you know, is it difficult on the family? Yeah, I think I tried to have my sister come into town when I left, so I paid for my sister's flight to come into Utah to hang out with my family and help with the family. But most people live next to their families or by their families. I don't so. You know, make the proper arrangements. Don't be an idiot. You know, you prep your wife for where you're going. You show her where you're going. You show her, you know, how you're doing this and how you're doing that. And you make her a part of it. And then she understands it. And then you go and you do it. And then when you do it, you come back and you're kind of grounded for a while.
0: <laughs> grounded, grounded as in, like, a yeah. trouble or grounded as, like, you're just now, you know. Well, it depends
1: re- how long you've been married. I mean, if you're really <laughs> what at all. But if you for five years, anything past five, I'm going to say you're grounded. Now, depending on how you're getting along, if you're in year seven of your marriage, I always that was a real tough time for me at, at seven because we had the kids and they're at certain ages. Uh, yeah, you're grounded for a couple of weeks.
0: <laughs> but in the end, I yeah. guess it's all worth it with the experience. Now you can technically, you get to always remember to share with your family and kids as they start you know, becoming of age and if, 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 if they're interested.
1: Well, you know, when you go and do a trip like that, you come back with gifts. You don't just come back and be like, hey, I'm home. You know, your wife's going to be like, great, asshole. I don't care. So my suggestion is to, you know, I bought my wife a really nice set of earrings when I was in Alaska, and then I bought my kids some books and some shirts and stuff like that. So you know, I remember I bought Sid a, like a, a little mug that she could drink out of and she was like four years old at the time and then I got Aiden a shirt and uh and then I got him a sweatshirt I got my wife nice earrings and I bought her a book so yeah I may have spent another 150 dollars on buying some gifts but there's a reason why there's gifts stores in airports so people don't get grounded
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> the longer you go the bigger the gift right <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and then when you get home, you have to be ready to to change gears and be a dad. If you, And if you're not a dad and you're just going to be a dude and you come home, well, then great. Go to work. Go make some money. Um, you know, but if you're a dad, then, you know, be a good dad when you get home. You know, let your wife go out to this, this deal here with her friends and let her go over to this deal with her friends. Take her out on a date right away. Um You know, let everyone know that they're important to you and that you care a great deal about them and they sacrificed for you to be able to go on this trip.
0: That's some good advice because especially for someone like me, I've never gone. I mean, the furthest longest I've been away is about a week and a half. In fact, um, I think really the longest I've been away is when I went to the uh, when you did bowcast at the bird twice. Twice well those are probably the longest times
1: yeah well then you're in a different boat you need to just kind of do a western hunt for like five days first and you need to bite off a little bit smaller chunk because you don't just go and do this trip and you know <laughs> you got to start here in the lower 48 do some start going to you know go to kansas i've told you this for years and you don't go you know go to kansas and go hunt with a guide and and go hunt some whitetails, and then, you know, you have to prep your wife. Like, if you go on one hunt, then you tell her when you're done with that one, say, yeah, I'm going to go on another one next year. I had so much fun, but do yourself a favor. Never, ever, ever let your wife know, like, something went wrong on the trip. As far as she knows, everything went perfectly smooth. If you're going to come home and complain about your hunting partner or this or that, then she goes, well, why'd you go on the hunt in the first place? Don't don't give your wife ammunition.
0: That makes sense.
1: So go... go you know, these guys that want to go and guide hunts, oh, it's too, it's not enough. I found a, a Kansas hunt for whitetails from a guy that I went and saw at a hunting show here about four different times. He comes every year. Great guy. Um, and I just couldn't put it together for me to go. And he was only taking like, he had like nine customers at the time. And that's exactly what I wanted. Low amount of customers, good deer, and a chance at a great deer. That's who you want to go with. Does he live on the property? No. Okay, so does he lease? How long has he had the leases for? You know, if the longer he's had the leases for with the same people, then that means he pays his bills. He's a good guy. He's a businessman. So go on a couple of these first, and then you give the guy 1000 bucks at a hunting show, and you lock up the deal, and then you give him another 500 here and another 500 there, and a year later you pay for it, and it doesn't hurt as much. And don't keep track of how much money you spend either. My dad keeps track of how much money he He spends on a hunt, and I told him, I said, we don't play that way. You pay the money, and you don't tally it, and you certainly don't tell anyone what the tally
0: is. (laughs) It's almost like if you're going to go to Vegas, you go there to spend and have fun, not really care about what the amount you spent because it's meant to be joyful. That's the reason why you're going out there anyways, to blow it and have fun. This would be going out to go hunting for a purpose, whatever the cost ends up being is the cost.
1: Yeah, except in Vegas you don't win. That's why they have big casinos. (laughs) <laughs> well, they don't—they don't have all that glitz and glam from paying out people.
0: when I actually really did enjoy this episode. It opened up my eyes, things I didn't know about, and um, it was interesting. I really appreciated. It. This was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, I guess um, right now, I know that you have a lot of things going on, especially being that the honey season just around the corner. What do you have in the books this season?
1: Um, right now I'm waiting for some financial to come in from some of the companies that I work for Okay. and, and that is holding me up more than normal. So I, right now I have an elk hunt in Utah, a mule deer hunt in Utah. I'm on the fence as far as going to Colorado and that I don't think will go through, but if it does in the last minute, then I'll go do that. And then... If Colorado doesn't go through, then I always have the potential to go to Alberta and uh, hang out with my old friend over there. And that's, that's pretty much it. Then I'll come back. So, oh, wait, I've got one white tail trip in Missouri that I'm supposed to do with uh, a good friend of mine uh, that works uh, for lethal products. Oh, cool. Sentinel. And so I was invited on that. So, I'm not quite sure.
0: <laughs> well, still sounds like you got at least a few nice uh, hunting trips in the books for this year, which is cool.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, and I'm fine if I end up staying here and uh, hunting elk and mule deer, and uh, you know, I got to get those on film, and that's always a very big task to do. So, I'm okay with that, and I will have fun. You know,
0: how would um? I know you've been doing a lot more video, and you've been posting stuff on Facebook. Like, what is the best way? if they haven't heard one of your past seasons or the episodes yet, but what's the best way for someone to follow you to know a little bit more about what you're up to?
1: Well, I've got a website that I don't put anything on. And my buddy, Travis always tells me to put stuff on
0: <laughs> one, <laughs> day, one day.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Facebook's a great way to reach out to me. Um, I am now friends with probably a dozen people that I have never met, uh, in person, but they have reached out to me on Facebook and uh, I just give them my cell phone number and I get them on the phone and sometimes they're freaking out. Sometimes they're just like, okay, I got this is my problem. What do I need to do? So that's the best way.
0: Okay. So just pretty much Facebook. I know you have a YouTube account, which I'll add to the, the uh, show notes. Appreciate
1: it. Thank
0: you. It was a pleasure of having you on the show again and yeah, I know I'll have more questions. Um, in fact, I, I actually, with some of the things you were bringing up, I think I'd love to do an episode on you know, going in through the full preparation of how to actually prep a exhibition type of hunt or a hunt out of state to even you know go into Alaska, Canada, or just from someone like myself in the east side of the United States to go out west. What are the things you need to think of, like actually go through those steps? Um, I think it would be a really good episode because, again, that's a lot of stuff I just don't know. I haven't done it.
1: Yeah, sounds good to me, um, you know. You know how to get a hold of me. I'd be more than happy to come on the show. I love coming on the show. And, you
0: know, thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys and girls, what did you think of that episode? To me, solid. I loved every moment. I loved the conversation. I honestly enjoy speaking with Anthony because he's fully packed with tons of knowledge about hunting, about bow hunting. Now, one of the things I do love about him is that he keeps it real. He does not sugarcoat the situation. If he thinks something needs to be said, he's going to say it. And so I hope that you got the same experience that I did. So doing these extreme hunts, it's given me that thought process. It's given me that that dream that, you know, it can happen. It might be further out in my lifetime, but there are certain ones like this particular one is something that's more doable. And as you heard, it's not a break the bank type of budget. You could do this and you could do this with another couple group of guys or girls, however you want to do this. But the thing is, it can be done. And I love that he was willing to share what he knew and he gave out some great nuggets. So this is the third edition to the extreme hunt of August, all about extreme hunting. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, And if you haven't taken the time yet, I'd really appreciate if you could go to mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes. It will take you to our iTunes account where the ability to leave us a five-star review. I'm looking for a five-star review, but any type of review, I would be more than glad to accept it because I want to know what you think about our show. We're trying to get better. We love giving out this information. We love reading the reviews. So share what you think about our show so we can improve or do something that you might want to hear that we haven't tapped onto yet. And I've been saying this over and over again almost in every episode, but we are trying to expand our social reach. And our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, they're not as high as some other shows out there. We're hitting around a couple hundred, and I'm okay with it because it's organic. And I'm really hoping to build it up better. I'm trying to put more energy and more time to get those social accounts higher, provide more information that I think that you might like. Um, But, you know, if you could, come and like those pages. Follow us. Help us get this out further. And uh, I'd appreciate it. So I guess that's it. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the next one. I'll see you next time. I'm Travis Doe, your host of the Bowers Podcast. I'm out here.